the protesters, they're calling for independence of Hong Kong and a play on words in the one country, two systems. Their banners say one Hong Kong. So it's no longer about being part of China. They say that so long as we're part of China, we will not be able to have our autonomy and live freely. Divya Gopalan is a longtime Al Jazeera veteran. But first and foremost, she's a Hong Konger. I was born here. I grew up here. And after being a journalist and working in many other countries, I finally returned to Hong Kong about six years ago to come home. Divya grew up in a colonial Hong Kong, ruled by the British. In 1997, it was handed over to China. And for a while, the focus for many Hong Kongers was on maintaining peace and building prosperity. In 2014, she moved back to Hong Kong on the day the umbrella protests kicked off. Her reporting there since has been defined by protests for democracy and the fallout from them. Many of the Hong Kongers on the streets now, this summer, say this is the climax of that story. That 2020 is the year they get democracy. Or lose everything. Here are two of them. My biggest worry and concern for Hong Kong is that we will lose freedom from as simple as picking our political thoughts or just shouting slogans. So when we have the chance now, we have to step out. Hong Kong was not the same to me as starting summer last year, and it will never be the same again. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. The anti-government protests last summer were massive. Activists shut down Hong Kong's airport, one of the busiest in the world. Police responded with tear gas, with rubber bullets. Honestly, it's kind of similar to what we're seeing happening in the United States right now with the protests against police brutality. Some people say it's ironic since the U.S. came out so strongly against China when Hong Kongers were protesting last year. So I asked Divya about that. There are some online who have noted the seeming hypocrisy in the U.S.'s stance, especially given these mass protests against police brutality and racism in the country. There have been arms used against protesters, rubber bullets, tear gas, things that we saw in Hong Kong as well. What do you make of those parallels? That's right, Malika. That's exactly what the U.S. had condemned when the protests were uh, heating up in Hong Kong last year, you know, crushing the people's voice, trying to oppress the young people of Hong Kong. And it seems that they're doing exactly the same thing. Beijing and the Chinese social media, cyberspace is just reveling in it. You're just seeing all kinds of comments saying, we never sent the Chinese army after months of protests in Hong Kong, but the U.S. talked about it within days of protests. So yes, you know, the irony has, hasn't been lost on anyone and nobody's missed the fact that, you know, the tables can very easily be turned. The protests in the U.S. jolted many Americans out of their pandemic lockdowns. In Hong Kong, we saw the opposite. The protest movement that had begun in June 2019 was forced to a halt when the coronavirus struck. And the main reason 
things became quieter was because of the coronavirus outbreak. Even the protesters knew that they did not want to go out in the streets. They did not want to uh, put the city at risk of infections. And in fact, they took it upon themselves to use the methods they use for protests to help combat the virus. All these tracking apps that they used to use before to help protesters figure out where the police were and where the next protest will be, they used it to help track where the outbreaks were. So the public could use it and figure out which was a high risk zone, which wasn't. They also went out on the streets and started handing out masks. But while all that was happening, the government instead made these moves to crack down further on democracy. So while the public was distracted and the protesters were focused on something else, they arrested about 15 of Hong Kong's biggest pro-democracy figures and uh, pro-democracy politicians and brought them on charges of taking part in an unauthorized assembly. Those unauthorized assemblies were peaceful marches that happened last year in August and October. Millions of people attended them. The activists arrested in April, some of the most well-known protesters in Hong Kong, are accused of organizing them. Around the same time, two monitoring agencies, which are based in Hong Kong but report back to Beijing's Communist Party, declared that they now get a say in city affairs. This is a first. Activists say it violates the one country, two systems policy that Beijing agreed to in 1997. The idea of one country, two systems is that Hong Kong is part of China, but Hong Kong has its own government and has its own autonomy and can run itself. Hong Kongers cling to this policy because it protects them from some of the more authoritarian measures we see on the mainland. Still, Beijing's agencies keep pressing ahead. They've issued a bunch of statements lobbying against pro-democracy politicians in Hong Kong. And so they started making all these moves and people realized that unless we have a system where we're protected, we're at the mercy of not only Hong Kong's government, but also of Beijing. So you mentioned these arrests. Martin Lee was also arrested. He is the 82-year-old father of Hong Kong democracy, as he's called. You spoke with him recently. What is his take on all of this? He agrees with the protesters. He says that China is definitely going back on its agreement with Hong Kong and keeping Hong Kong autonomous. He also agrees that Hong Kong's government has completely failed Hong Kong's people time and time again. I felt bad when I saw these young people fighting for democracy being arrested and brought to the courts. Whereas I, who has been fighting for democracy all these years, were left alone. So when they arrested me and prosecuted me, I felt relieved. At least my fate is now tied to the fate of the kids. So when I spoke to him and I said, well, look, you know, you're 82 years old. You could spend the rest of your life in jail. And he said, if that happens, I will do so proudly because we can't just let these young people take up the mantle. We've got to help them. And I want to do whatever I can to help them. We mustn't give up. My philosophy is that so long as I'm still there fighting, I haven't lost. So he's very much a pro-democracy advocate. And what's also amazing about him is he's also incredibly sharp, even at his age. And then after I interviewed him, he wanted to show me some stretches that he normally does. Because <laughs> I told him that my back was hurting a little bit. So um, quite an incredible man. 
Divya, last year when these protests were happening, it felt like the whole world was watching. This year, many of us are admittedly distracted by the global pandemic. What role has that played? So what's interesting is that the Hong Kong government was banking on the rest of the world being distracted, hoping that they wouldn't notice the stealth moves, I would say, they were making on Hong Kong to try and crush the democracy movement further. Divya says Hong Kong police have used coronavirus health guidelines to break up protests. Until Friday, it was illegal for Hong Kongers to hang out publicly in groups of eight or more. The police tactic is saying, we're finding you and we're arresting you because you have more than eight of you together. Therefore, we can break you up. Then there was the Tiananmen vigil on June 4th. Every year, Thousands of people in Hong Kong commemorate the Tiananmen Square massacre that happened in Beijing in 1989. Chinese soldiers shot at protesters who were fighting for democracy. Hundreds, maybe thousands of people were killed. It's hard to say exactly because no one on the mainland is allowed to talk about it. The fact that Hong Kong holds this annual vigil shows what a unique place it is within China. But this year, 2020, Hong Kong's government, for the first time ever, refused to grant permits for that vigil. They said it was unsafe because of the coronavirus. You may be thinking, well, maybe that's true. It's possible that Chief Executive Carrie Lam really was just being extra cautious. But it's been weeks since Hong Kong reported a locally transmitted case of the virus. Restaurants started reopening in April. Students went back to school in May. Many activists say it was just an excuse to clamp down. If Carrie Lam thinks that this coronavirus uh, scare could just uh, shoo away Hong Kong protesters, uh, she would be quite wrong. People defied coronavirus restrictions this year because they fear the Communist Party wants to end the memorial for good. There was probably uh, at least 10,000 people there, which is small by the standards of previous gatherings, but sizable enough given that this one was an illegal one. This vigil was part of Hong Kong's ability to speak up. It was a symbol of Hong Kong's freedom of speech and expression. So even people who didn't necessarily support the protesters, people who perhaps are a little bit more pro-China, were still quite surprised and angry about it. Police just cordoned the exact area in the park where this vigil is normally held, and then kept the rest of the park open. So that was the other thing that made people wonder, is this really about social distancing? Because schools were open, people were still on public transportation, people could still meet up. It almost seemed counterproductive. Meanwhile, Hong Kong and Beijing have also made legal moves during this time that activists say chip away at Hong Kong's democracy. First, there was the national anthem law, passed by Beijing and then also Hong Kong's legislative council. So Hong Kong shares the same national anthem as mainland China, and it's called the March of the Volunteers, ironically, because <laughs> it isn't voluntary anymore. What happened last year is, particularly when the protest movement started, whenever the March of the Volunteers would come on during national events, protesters and perhaps people who were angry at China or wary of China would boo it. 
And so the Hong Kong government and of course Beijing were very offended by it. And so they decided to put in this law that would uh, criminalize anyone who abuses or disrespects the law. Exactly what that means, it's unclear. But to give you an example of how widespread it became, last year during the Olympic football qualifying matches, when you'd have two teams come and play, for instance, South Korea would come and their national anthem would be played. You'd have a lot of the Hong Kong public standing up and cheering for the South Korean national anthem. And then as soon as the March of the Volunteers came on, they'd all sit down and boo or turn their backs. And so even the football players weren't sure what was going on, because usually when they play an away game, they don't get this kind of support. Oh, wow. So what about the national security bill? So that, exactly, what about the national security bill? China is moving closer to passing its controversial national security law for Hong Kong. The new law would prohibit acts of secession, subversion, terrorism and foreign interference in Hong Kong. The timing of this new law comes ahead of elections, which are due in September. Critics say it creates the conditions for China's leaders to disqualify candidates that they consider disloyal or a threat to national security. It sideswiped everyone. Everyone was just shocked at how quickly this is all coming into place. The national security bill is something that should have been enacted in Hong Kong anyway. It is within the Hong Kong's constitution. But... According to Hong Kong's constitution, it should be enacted by Hong Kong's government to fit Hong Kong's situation. And every time it's been brought up within Hong Kong's local government, there was huge opposition to it. In April, suddenly China's parliament decided that if Hong Kong wasn't going to do it, they were going to do it for Hong Kong. And they've just recently announced, ultimately, they would have security offices here in Hong Kong monitoring the situation and perhaps even enforcing it. And for the most severe cases, they can just tell you, you violated the national security law. We're taking you over to mainland China to face the courts there. And that is what's so scary for the people of Hong Kong. Also because the reason that people took to the streets last year was for this reason. They didn't want an extradition bill that would allow people in Hong Kong to be sent to mainland China to face charges for something that happened outside of mainland China. Exactly, exactly. But the thing about that extradition bill is it was very much about criminal acts. So if you murder someone or if there's fraud. Now, this conversation that we're having right now could make me subject to the national security law. In the future, an interview like this could immediately, I could be called up for it and investigated and possibly hauled up in courts here. And if I'm very unlucky, be hauled up in courts in China, across the border. What does that mean for your reporting and for your life? What are you, how are you feeling? You know, Malika, I come from a family of journalists. My father was a foreign correspondent. My sister also is a financial reporter. Her husband also works for one of the papers here. Like, we're all journalists, and so we're very, very passionate about freedom of press. And, um... Yeah, well, what does it mean for us? I don't know. But the thing about this for me and my sister and a lot of journalists in Hong Kong is that this is our home and we want to be here till the bitter end. I'm lucky in a way because I have an escape. I have a British passport, mainly because I was here during the handover when it was a British colony. And then by virtue of that, I got a bona fide British passport. But 
most people in Hong Kong don't have it, and a lot of the local journalists in particular, they're hugely at risk. So is the Hong Kong government itself complicit in some of these new measures? Because with one country, two systems, that still means that Beijing can't unilaterally pass laws in Hong Kong. The Legislative Council has to approve them as well. So if this isn't in the interest of what most Hong Kongers want or say they want, why is the Legislative Council passing them? The Legislative Council is divided between your pro-Beijing camp and the pro-democracy camp. And a lot of the pro-democracy legislators in the past few years have been ousted or disqualified for very minor things about the way they said their oath and things like that. And traditionally, Hong Kong's legislature also has very much a pro-Beijing camp. And this is a hangover from the fact that Hong Kong was very much a business center and it was a good idea to be close to China because for financial reasons, the city does rely on China and would not survive without China's economic health. But on the flip side of that, what's happened now is they're in a position where they cannot necessarily voice their concern or voice their opposition to it. Divya says she spoke with one pro-Beijing legislator in Hong Kong who has publicly supported the national security bill. And when I asked him why, he said, off the record? Because if I didn't, it would be treason. With their own politicians' hands tied, many Hong Kong activists are asking the international community to step in. So I asked Divya if they wanted to, what could other countries do to put pressure on China? One of the pathways is going to the United Nations and putting sanctions on China. So that's what many people here hope. And then, of course, there's the Human Rights and Democracy Act, which was spearheaded by the young protesters last year. That was a law passed in the United States in November, in solidarity with Hong Kong protesters. The Human Rights and Democracy Act threatens Chinese and Hong Kong officials deemed responsible for human rights abuses in the territory with sanctions. The bill requires the State Department to verify every year that Hong Kong retains enough autonomy from the rest of China. And so recently we heard the U.S. president talk about Hong Kong being not sufficiently autonomous, which means they could take away Hong Kong's special trading status, which China's businesses and financial companies use as a conduit for a lot of their business. And then two, put sanctions on any Chinese official or Hong Kong official that is seen as eroding Hong Kong's autonomy or clamping down on Hong Kong's human rights. How likely do you think that might be, imposing sanctions? Well, with President Trump, it could be likely. I think he's the only president that would do it, mainly because he's got his own he's, he's got his own agenda also. And he so far, he's been the only leader to stood up to China. China has replaced its promised formula of one country, two systems with one country, one system. Therefore, I am directing my administration to begin the process of eliminating policy exemptions that give Hong Kong different and special treatment. The problem is that removing Hong Kong's special trading status would hurt Hong Kong just as much as it would hurt any of those Chinese officials. Hong Kong's special trading status means that the U.S. trades with the city as if it's an independent country, 
It's not affected by the U.S.-China trade war. Tariffs that are in place as part of that war don't apply to Hong Kong. But if the status is revoked, all of that would change. It could make it more expensive to do business in Hong Kong. And so, some companies might decide not to anymore. Hong Kong is caught between these two superpowers, and both of them, to a certain extent, use Hong Kong to their agenda. China, whenever it wants to make sure that it's telling the world that they're in charge and they're in control. And the U.S., when it wants to hit back at China. In fact, I spoke to an economist recently who described it so perfectly. There was a great cartoon in the local paper yesterday showing two football players, one dressed as Uncle Sam, one dressed as a panda, and Hong Kong being kicked along like a football, but a football with the air coming out. Rather cruel, but I think it hit the spot. In the end, it's Hong Kong that's likely to lose out. There's a sense that, and even the protesters know this, that no matter how much they go in the streets, no matter how much they fight, it really is, as a journalist once described it, it's basically David and Goliath, but David without the slingshot. And that's The Take. By the way, Hong Kong's democracy movement is hurtling towards an expiration date, the year 2047. If you want to learn more about that, you should listen to our episode from August. We'll share it on Twitter and Instagram at AJTheTake. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilve with Alexandra Locke, Dina Kispe, Ney Alvarez, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is the sound designer. Natalia Aldana is The Take's engagement producer. Stacey Samuel is the executive producer, and Graylin Bushier is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>